This is Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. I am your host, Vincent Hill. Today is Tuesday, March the 6th, 2018, and I can't believe we're already in March. Man, this year is already flying by, but I tell you what I am ready for is some consistent warm weather. I swear here in Atlanta, one week it's in the 70s, the next week it's in the 50s and the lows in the 40s. I'm ready for some consistent weather. I know coming up at the end of the month, my son and I are headed back to the Bahamas. I can't wait. A much, much needed break uh, just to get away and de-stress from everything that I got going on. And speaking of, I was up in New York this past Friday. Uh, I got a chance to host the Law and Crime Network. I know last week I had mentioned that uh, I was going to host it this coming Friday, March the 9th. However, I got the call to come up on last Friday and host the show. The network is actually off the air this entire week, so I will not be hosting um, Law and Crime Network this coming Friday, March the 9th. However, again, I hosted it last Friday. I have the link. It's on my Twitter. So if you want to go see what we talked about on those cases, go to the Law and Crime Network on Twitter or go to my Twitter page. You can actually follow that. We covered the George Birch case that was out of Green Bay, Wisconsin. He was convicted of first degree murder and the death of Nicole Vanderheiden, a 31 year old mother. Uh, George Birch's story was he met her at a bar. They went to have sex. And sometime during this alleged sex in her driveway, no less, the boyfriend of Nicole Vanderheiden supposedly knocked George Birch out at six foot seven, 290 pounds. He woke up minutes later. Nicole was already dead. And his story was that the boyfriend held him at gunpoint, made him dispose of the body, dispose of the clothes dispose of all of the evidence. However, the jury convicted him mostly because the cord that Nicole was strangled with only had her DNA and George Birch's DNA and also his phone, his Google locator. All of that put him not only where the murder occurred, but where the body was dumped, where the clothes were dumped. So it was a pretty open and shut case, but he had this outlandish story that the boyfriend held him at gunpoint and uh, made him do all of this stuff. But Law and Crime Network, it's a great network. Uh, it's owned by Dan Abrams, the same guy that does live PD that you see on A&E every Friday and Saturday. So it's kind of like a court TV. You know, those of us that can remember court TV back in the day, they would cover a lot of the major trials that were going on. In the country, and that's what Law and Crime Network does. And I know the next case they're going to follow pretty heavily is the Tex MacGyver case, which is here in Atlanta, where the attorney who shot his wife in the back doesn't dispute that, but says it was an accident. Of course, she died uh, the very next day from her injuries. So, speaking of New York, I was up there last Friday. I flew up in the morning. The plan was to fly back the same night. So, 
I only wore one suit, didn't pack any clothes, had my laptop, and that was it because fly in, fly out, boom. Unfortunately, the weather didn't see it that way. They had that nor'easter that came through that part of the country, which ended up canceling a lot of flights. So I had to uh, end up getting a hotel. I stayed at the Manhattan at Times Square, where I always stayed. Luckily, they were able to take care of me last minute, and I flew back uh, Saturday evening. Tonight, I'm right back on the plane, right after this show airs, headed back to New York. I have to go tape CBS 48 Hours about the Tex MacGyver case. And then Wednesday, I have another very important production meeting for a big project that I'm working on that's going to come out next year. And I still can't give the details just yet, but I know it'll be big. But this time, I'm actually packing clothes because I'll be in New York until Friday. I know uh, Wednesday, tomorrow, they're calling for about nine inches of snow. Uh, so luckily, I won't have to worry about trying to get a hotel and get back to the airport because I'm staying there anyway. All right, enough about catching up with what I've been doing and what I've got going on because this is beyond the badge and we talk about police stuff here on this show. So I want to go out to Baltimore and I think I told you on this show that uh, Baltimore police had a new police commissioner, uh, you know, in the whole wake of the Freddie Gray thing, there was some shakeup in that department and there were some officers convicted uh, a few weeks ago on some corruption charges. And, you know, the department itself is in pretty bad shape. You had those six officers who were charged in the death of Freddie Gray and they made it racial again, even though most of those officers were minority and one was a woman. They still made it this racial thing. Those officers were cleared because they did no wrongdoing. You have one Baltimore detective, Detective Sutter, Suter, who is dead just before Thanksgiving. His murder is still unsolved. So there's a lot of things going on in the Baltimore Police Department. So this new commissioner, Daryl DeSosa, um, he has announced a strategy to root out corrupt cops. And it's basically integrity test. So it goes on to say, and I'm reading an article, but I'll just paraphrase it. Police commanders might plant cash on a park bench to tempt officers, or they might call a district police station to test officers over the phone. So this whole thing is designed to test the officer's integrity. Now, in theory, it makes sense, right? You, you have to make sure you don't have bad cops. You have to make sure integrity is the number one value in policing, because without integrity, what do you have? But I, I, I guess the bigger issue is if you announce this, and it's being publicized in articles and it's making the local media. Do you really think that officers are going to just say, oh, man, here's some free cash just sitting around on a park bench? First of all, it, I'm just going to break it down. If you're a citizen and you're walking by and you see a hundred dollar bill laying on the ground, it's not against the law to pick it up 
and claim it as your own because it's discarded property. It's an item left on the ground. It doesn't say that you have to report it. It doesn't say you have to read the serial number and call the banks to see if this money is stolen. Like we've all walked down the street and found money. My son and I were at the varsity here in Atlanta and I found a hundred dollar bill on the ground. It's just luck of the draw. So I, I think I'm hoping that the analogy of planting cash on a park bench is just that an analogy, because if you're going to do this, what you need to do is plant narcotics, plant cash and vehicles that, you know, police officers who you suspect being corrupt will stop. And does it happen? Are police corrupt? Well, Baltimore had. I think four officers convicted last month. I know in Nashville of two officers that I personally work with that were convicted of corruption charges because they were stealing drugs from drug dealers and then going to give the drugs to one of their brothers to resell and taking cash and things of that nature. So does it happen? Absolutely. But will it happen if you're telling people that's what you're going to do? I don't know if that was a political ploy. Simply to say, yes, we're doing something to weed out these bad cops more than the actual intent of weeding out this, these bad cops. Because if my dad told me, if you do A, B, and C, I'm going to knock you out. Guess what? I'm not doing A, B, and C. If my dad told me, those cookies in there are mine, and if you touch one of them, even though I'm going to sit them right here on the couch, I'm going to knock you out. Guess what? I'm not touching the cookies. It's that simple. Now, there are a small few that are saying that this this new commissioner, DeSosa, again, is doing this for politics, but he's doing this for a paycheck because his contract that was approved by the city pays him 210000 a year. And he has a 150000 severance clause if he's fired without cause. So you can kind of equate that to, let's say, a prosecutor who wants to make judge who is based on his prosecution rate. That's how prosecutors make judges. And now that this city has seen what it's seen, and now you have this new guy here who's making all of these promises to fix the department from the inside before we fix the outside... And this guy's getting $210,000 a year to do that. Some people are kind of saying that this is all political and that some officers may, who may actually be good officers, fall victim to this political rhetoric just to make this new commissioner look good, to make it look like he's keeping his promise. Now, I don't know. I don't know much about this DeSoso guy. I know he was a cop in Baltimore for several decades before getting this job. I assume he stayed out of trouble because he definitely wouldn't have been on the department that long, we can assume. So I, I really don't know much about this guy, but I can kind of see why some people are kind of saying that you're making all this money. You're making all of these promises. You're not the first guy to make these promises in this city. You definitely won't be the last. And the crime rate in the city, excluding you worrying about your officers, the crime rate 
in the city is astronomical. So some are saying, why don't we focus on reducing the crime versus targeting police officers? But again, I agree. Should you be a police officer if you're corrupt, if you're stealing money, if you're doing this? Absolutely not. But when you're in a city like Baltimore, where the crime rate has quadrupled since 2015, and the city is in dire straits, yeah, I think you definitely need to focus on reducing the crime and reducing the illegal guns and reducing the drugs and the robberies and the rapes that happen in that city every day. All right, I want to switch gears and head out to Charlotte, another city that has made the news over controversial quote-unquote shootings. Um, last month, February 2nd, there was a police shooting that you probably haven't heard about because it doesn't fit in mainstream media's narrative. There was a shooting, officer-involved shooting, where a Charlie Shoup was shot and killed by police. And the reason you haven't heard about it, again, it doesn't fit mainstream media's narrative. So take that for what it's worth. So the gist of it is officers responded to a call. They had responded to this house several times, actually. There was a report that he had a knife. So as officers approached, Charlie Shoup approached one of the officers with his right hand raised with the knife in his right hand. Now, immediately, there's deadly force there. A knife is deadly force. So the officer did what he's trained to do based on his training, based on the use of force continuum, based on the laws. He used deadly force. Several shots were fired, and he eventually died. But during the video that you can actually watch on police1.com, during that video, you can see after, even after being shot, that uh, the individual was still coherent, still uh, holding the knife, not listening to commands. Um, so the issue around this is his family is saying that he was mentally ill, and those were the reason for all those other calls. He was schizophrenic, all of that, which... Very well, it's likely true. And Charlotte does have specialized officers that are trained in mental health and how to deal with suicidal people. They actually have more than 600 police officers. They're called uh, CIT officers, Crisis Intervention Team. And I had a guest on my show a while back Fonda Bryant, who lives in Charlotte, she actually teaches part of this class, and she and I always have these off-the-record conversations about mental health and policing and how police, their first response is to kill someone with a mental health issue versus trying to de-escalate the situation, and my response is always the same. In that split second where you are faced with an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury, i.e. knife, gun, weapon. The mental health aspect of that goes out of the window because the officer has a duty to, uh, 
protect himself. He has a right to protect him or herself. And he has a duty to protect the public, i.e. if Charlie Shoup, who was armed with a knife and police did absolutely nothing, but then Charlie ran up to the people that were standing outside of their apartment, which is seen on the body cam and stabbed them 25 times, then who is that family going to blame? They're not going to blame this guy who had a mental health issue. No, they're going to blame those police officers that were on the scene that didn't react to that situation because they will start quoting the law and say that a police officer has a duty to protect and serve the public from imminent danger. So it's a no-win situation for these officers when you're dealing with mental health. Now, again, there have been several calls to that house. Yes, there are 600-plus officers trained in crisis intervention, but it doesn't trump, no pun intended, it doesn't trump that split-second imminent danger, imminent threat situation that these officers are faced with. Because once you're approached with deadly force, there is no talking down. It doesn't work that way. And it's not in the movies where the officer's going to shoot the knife out of the hand. It's not like the movies where Will Smith shoots him in the leg. It doesn't work that way. When you're met with deadly force, you respond with deadly force. And one of the advocates there in Charlotte uh, said, well, what's the point of having tasers if police aren't going to use them? Well, A, again, deadly force. A taser is less than lethal force because it's not a device that was made with the intent to eliminate a threat, i.e. kill a threat. So knife, taser. Bzz. Now, we've talked about this before. How many times people have been tased and it's had no effect on them? People that were under the influence of a narcotic. People that were mentally ill. You see where I'm going with this? So, if you're approached with a knife, as a citizen, are you going to pull out your pepper spray? Or are you going to pull out your gun? Because you know that knife, if it stabs you, could likely lead to your death. So, are you going to... Pull out your brass knuckles and hope you catch him with the right hook. Or if you're armed with a pistol and he's coming at you as a citizen, are you going to pull out your pistol and shoot him to eliminate the threat? And I assure you that there's not a citizen in this country that would say, well, I would just shoot him in the leg. Or I would try to shoot the knife out of his hand. Or I would try to tackle him. Or I would try to do. It doesn't work that way. Because the closer someone gets to you with a knife, especially in police worlds, seven feet and in, that's the danger zone. The closer someone gets to you with a knife, you don't have time to try. Oh, you know what? I'm going to try this trick I saw in a karate movie where he kicked the knife out of his hand and then he tackled him with a judo throw and then he got up and ran. It doesn't work that way. You, you, you're, you're, you're met with deadly force. You respond with deadly force. And we can have this debate about mental health and schizophrenia and how police should deal with mental health issues. And yes, Charlotte has 600 
plus officers that are trained in that, but that is not the duty of a police officer. The duty of police officers to protect and serve, to make sure that the citizens are abiding by the laws, all of the things that have to do with the legal system, that's a police officer's job. It is not to show up on the scene and be Dr. Phil. Granted, yes, they're trained in that. These officers, they're trained in that, but they're not showing up. They're not telling people to sit down on the couch. And in seconds, it can go from, hey, sir, we're here here to help to, hey, sir, drop that knife or I will have no choice but to shoot you. And in this body cam video, that's exactly what happened. It went from zero to shots fired in about three seconds or less. Because that officer had no choice. The individual was charging at him with his right hand up in a stabbing motion. Now, chances are, if he had mental health issues, this could have been likely suicide by cop. But police don't have time to even think about that. They don't have time to say, sir, I'm not going to help you in your suicide attempt. No, it doesn't work that way. Drop the weapon, bam, bam. Drop the weapon, you're still approaching, bam, bam. End of discussion. At that point, the officer doesn't care if you've taken your medication. The officer doesn't care that he's been to your house 30 times and he knows your first name. The officer doesn't care if he knows your mama's name, your daddy's name, your doggy's name. If he's met with deadly force, he's going to respond with deadly force. So police had been called to Shoup's house the day before, and his mother told the medical workers that Shoup hadn't taken his medication and that she believed he was trying to kill him. No, 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 sorry. And that he believed that the mom was trying to kill him, I guess, because he was off his meds. Now, that just goes back to what I said. The police were there the day before. They knew his name. They probably knew his mom's name. But it didn't matter because he approached that officer in a manner which can be perceived, which can be articulated and can be backed up and supported by body cam video. You know, the body cam that everybody wanted all police departments to have because it would prove that police are being uh, uh, just using this uh, excessive force and, you know, just doing all of this bad stuff. Well, The video, the body cam video, which it does pretty much 99% of the time, the body cam video actually exonerates these officers. And this hasn't even gone to an indictment or a trial or anything like that. But it's clear that he approached the officer with the knife in his hand raised in a threatening manner. That's why those officers had split second timing to make that decision to use deadly force. And speaking of timing, I know from personal experience how important timing is in policing. When I was in patrol, I needed information at my fingertips. That's why I relied heavily on my in-car laptop. And I want to talk about my friends over at Rugged Depot. Rugged Depot is your one-stop shop for rugged mobile technology. From Panasonic Toughbooks to in-car mounting solutions, Rugged Depot has you covered. Their dedicated sales teams are experienced in all facets 
of public safety products. Whether you need the latest fully rugged tough pad or an affordable laptop, call Rugged Depot at 833-RUGGED-3 or go to RuggedDepot.com and tell them Beyond the Bad sent you. That's RuggedDepot.com. R-U-G-G-E-D-Depot.com. I, I do have to share a story about those laptops, though. I tell you what, especially in a lot of the older police cars when I was patrolling, the, the mounting uh, mechanism on those would get old and it would get loose and you'd have to constantly tighten it up. And I tell you what, when that thing would get loose and that laptop would start to lean and you started to jump out of that car and you would hit your knee on the bottom of that laptop. Oh, my God, you talk about pain. But that just goes to show you how rugged they are, because trust me, my knee has planted a few of those laptops, but they still worked every time. All right. I, I want to take this time to send out a, a special thanks uh, to an email that uh, my buddies at RadioInfluence.com, Jason and Jerry, received about the show I did uh, last week concerning the uh, Florida school shooting and the uh, sheriff down there, Sheriff Israel. Uh, so I want to read it out. I, I did tell Jeff that I was going to uh, respond on the air to this, even though I responded via email, but it it reads as this, uh, Dear Mr. Hill, I came across your podcast while searching for more information on Sheriff Israel. After listening to this episode, I was really impressed with your analysis and measured views on these events. While you didn't change my opinion on Israel, in quotation, still a putz, uh, you did give me a fresh view of Peterson. That's the Scott Peterson, the deputy that was involved in this. By giving him the benefit of the doubt and waiting for the investigation to finish. Also, it's, I was very touched by your story of your airline flight home. You've got a new fan in me. Please keep up your great work. By the way, I'm from Minneapolis, and I'm currently listening to your Super Bowl podcast. Best to you, Jeff. And those types of emails don't come often, uh, but when they do, they hold a very special place in my heart. Because it's always great to hear from people that actually listen to the show. And, you know, how funny is that, that this guy was on the Internet? This Jeff from Minneapolis was on the Internet. He was looking for information on Sheriff Israel. And somehow this little guy in Atlanta, Georgia, with this little podcast called Beyond the Badge popped up and he started listening to the show. And now he says he's a listener. So Jeff in Minneapolis Sir, I thank you for reaching out. I thank you for your email. I thank you for your words of encouragement. And I appreciate you being touched by that um, story I told about my flight home from New York and the guy that had the seizure. Uh, again, I didn't do it for any accolades or any recognition. I just did it as a human being doing what humans should do for humans in this country, regardless of political race, creed color, you name it. We're humans. That's what we do when a fellow man is at a time of need. But Jeff, again, thank you. And hey, tell your friends about me. You know, we could use all the listeners we can get because here on Beyond the Badge, I give it to you straight. I don't sugarcoat 
anything. And some people say I'm biased because I'm an ex-cop. But no, if there's BS to be called, you know I will call the BS. But what I won't do is like the mainstream media is just make police look like the bad guys. So Jeff in Minneapolis, tell everyone in Minneapolis about me and tell them about the Super Bowl episode. So you guys up there in Minneapolis, and I hope it's getting warmer (laughs) there, will know what I had to say about the Super Bowl and those protests that you guys had up there and how everyone was upset about not being able to ride the train and all of this stuff. Tell your friends about it. So I want to get back to Baltimore and talk about this uh, new Commissioner DeSosa, uh, who had been on the department for 30 years, handpicked by Mayor Catherine Pugh after she fired uh, the former commissioner, Kevin Davis, who she said had not done enough to tackle the record rates of violence in the city (laughs) over the last year, which I think is uh, funny because you had an entire... uh, department, you had an entire agency handcuffing the police, so to speak, after Freddie Gray. And as I said then, and predicted that crime would go up because officers would stop being proactive officers. And that's exactly what happened. But yet, Kevin Davis uh, took the heat for that. But, you know, no one wants to be in the news again in the city of Baltimore, especially when you have a department and a government there that doesn't support its officers. So one of the things that Mayor Catherine Pugh has enabled DeSosa, Daryl DeSosa, to do is even though if a internal board investigation clears an officer of any wrongdoing, he can then come back still after this internal investigation and internal review, which means They've talked to witnesses. They've collected evidence. All of this good stuff. The Sosa can still come back and decide, even though the officer was found not guilty, to fire that officer. So as I said at the top of the show, is this a solution or is this the Soso justifying his salary, a political ploy to say, yes, we're making changes? Because let's be honest. As much as I hate to say it, I'm going to call it like it is, that really puts white officers at a disadvantage, if you think about it, because you saw what happened to those officers in the Freddie Gray case. You saw what's happening to white officers across this country if it involves a black man. They're being hung, judged during execution before they even go to trial. So it really puts white officers at a disadvantage, in my opinion, because the so-so, I think, will play the political game to appease the community and to appease his pockets because he saw what happened to Kevin Davis and just start firing random officers just because he has the authority to do so. But what's really interesting is that back in 1995, I believe it was, the Soso himself had faced questions about his role in two, two fatal shootings back in 1995. Now, I know that was almost 23 years ago, but here's a guy who was cleared for his wrongdoing in both shootings, but he now has the authority to say, well, you know what? I don't care if you were cleared or not. I'm going to fire you. 
And I'm sure back in 1995, whoever the commissioner was in 95 didn't have that authority. So it kind of makes him God, so to speak. He gets off on two fatal shootings, but now he has the the power, the ability to say, yeah, I know the board cleared you, Officer Joe Bob, but I didn't clear you, and now you're fired. But I don't think the mayor thought this through, because think about this. Much like the officers did in the Freddie Gray case, once they were acquitted, what did they do? They sued the city. And the city lost. What's that song? I fought the law and the law won? Well, in this case, the law was fighting the law and the law, the police officer, won. So don't you think if you just start randomly firing officers because you feel that they were guilty, even though the investigation says they were not, you feel they were guilty, so now you're going to get fired. I fired you. You're fired. You don't think that that's going to draw a lot of lawsuits? You don't think that that's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money? The same taxpayers who are worried about the crime in the city. The same taxpayers who some are scared to walk down the street because they may get robbed. The same taxpayers who may come home from work because they actually work in their house or their car has been broken into the same taxpayers who can't sit out on the porch because of random shootings. So it's going to cost the taxpayers millions and millions and millions of dollars because of all of these lawsuits, because I assure you, there's going to be some political strategies, let's just say, involved in these terminations. If you're a white cop, and you happen to shoot a black male who very well was armed and was resisting and met you with deadly force and all of the criteria to be in accordance with the law and the use of force continuum and protecting your lives and the lives of others. You met all of that. The shooting board clears you, but uh, 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 I want to make the city happy. Officer Joe Bob, so you are now fired. Okay, Commissioner, you'll be hearing from my attorneys within the next few days. And not only am I going to sue you for wrongful termination, back pay, and everything else I can think of or my attorney can think of, I'm going to sue you. And when I get this judgment, it's going to be over a million dollars. And you're going to have to go tell those citizens that you are sworn to protect that, uh, well, we got to raise your city taxes because of another lawsuit. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. I still say focus on reducing crime in that city. Because now officers really feel that they're not going to be protected. Now, I'm not talking about the bad ones because Baltimore probably still has a few bad ones that are left from those eight that were indicted on the whole gun task force. There's probably a few bad ones still in there, 
but that's still less than 1% of the entire population of that department. So those 99.9% of officers feel that they're not being protected, that no one's going to have their bat. So what's going to happen again? If you think it happened in the Freddie Gray case where police were like, yeah, we're not doing anything unless you call us. What do you think is going to happen now that, well, if I do something and I did it right and I did it within the law, but yet I can still be fired to appease the community, I'm not doing anything. And you think the crime rate is bad now, Mayor Pugh? You have no idea what you just opened. You just opened Pandora's box for your crime rate to go up. So my question would be, who's going to be tasked with firing you? Because if you fired Kevin Davis for a political ploy, in my opinion, and you brought on Daryl DeSoso, who looks like 95% of the demographic in Baltimore, if you know what I mean. And when the crime rate continues to grow and grow and grow, because your officers now don't want to do their jobs in fear of being fired and fear of being that next guy or girl on the TV, who's going to fire the mayor? Who's going to ask for the mayor's resignation? Because Leadership starts from the top down. And if the mayor is in charge of the police commissioner and the police commissioner is in charge of his officers, who's revamping the top? Because maybe you need a mayor who's more focused on protecting its citizens versus making their police officers out to be the bad guy because that's what's in. That's the latest and greatest craze is that cops are bad, especially in the black community. Well, the more you have that philosophy, the more your problems will increase because you're not addressing the real issue. And the real issue in the city of Baltimore, Ferguson and Chicago and all of these other places, is crime. It's crime. When you have 3,800 shootings in the city of Chicago, and no one talking about gun control, by the way, when you have that many shootings in one year where over 600 people died, it's not the police's fault. It's crime. In Baltimore, when your murder rate went up after Freddie Gray. It's not the police's fault. It's crime. And until the leaders from the mayor down see that, you're going to be in the same situation you're in right now, only worse. All right, it's that time of the show, and I got to get ready to get out of here to uh, catch this plane in New York. But it's time for the 10-7 segment. And if this is your first time listening, 10-7 means end of tour. And usually when an officer is killed in the line of duty, the dispatcher will say he's 10-7 for the remainder, which means he's not coming back. This week, I want to spotlight Deputy Sheriff Jacob Pickett, Boone County Sheriff's Office, Indiana. End of watch, Sunday, March 4th, 2018. Deputy Sheriff Jake Pickett succumbed to a gunshot wound he sustained two days earlier 
while attempting to apprehend a subject. The subject had fled from the Lebanon police officer who had gone to his home to serve a warrant on a different person. The officer recognized the man as also having warrants, but he fled in a vehicle with two other people when the officer tried to take him into custody. Deputy Pickett, a canine handler, joined the pursuit until it came to a stop on Indian Springs Road. The wanted man fled on foot with Deputy Pickett and his canine in pursuit. Deputy Pickett was shot in the head as he rounded the corner of a building. The subject was shot and wounded by another officer, but was able to return to the vehicle and flee again. He was taken into custody following another vehicle pursuit that ended on Interstate 65. Deputy Pickett was transported to the Wiltham Hospital before being flown to St. Vincent's Hospital in Indiana. He was kept on life support until the evening of March 4, 2018, so that his organs could be donated. That's a hero. Deputy Pickett had served with the Boone County Sheriff's Office for three years. He had previously served with the Tipton County Sheriff's Office for two years and the Marion County Sheriff's Office for three years. He is survived by his wife and two children. Wow, that that is, A, it's sad, and, and B, even in death, he was protecting and serving by donating his organs to someone that could definitely use them. Godspeed to you, Deputy Jacob uh, Pickett. Godspeed to your family. My prayers to them. I want to thank you for listening tonight. I will see you right here next week. Radioinfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is a Jim Fannin Show Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Stress. I mean, it's as contagious as the Ebola virus, Seth, and I think it's rampant. The news media blasts packets of stress into our living room, and then the media throws us a bone with one happy story. I'm like, what's up with that? (laughs) You know, on this show, we're going to lead with those stories. Are you kidding me? There's no negativity here. Bad news travels fast. Bad news travels 22, according to research, faster than good news. That's amazing. It actually travels faster with gossip and rumor. You got to beware of those stress. Some people carry stress. They don't even know it. They, They don't have a clue. I believe they could even pass a lie detector test. I'm not stressed as their voice goes up two octaves and, uh, You can definitely hear it in their voice. You can see it in their face. And they're not aware that stress has actually changed their mood, impregnated their body. Just make sure it's not you. The Jim Fannin Show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.